Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of five issues for just £10. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. All major parties agree that the UK needs to cut carbon emissions, but is the goal of a net zero achievable, or will it leave us, in the words of Steve Baker MP, quivering under duvets in the dark on windless winter nights? On this podcast, the former Brexit rebel explains his scepticism with The Critic's online editor, David Scullion. In 2019, just before leaving office, the former Prime Minister Theresa May committed the UK to achieving net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Boris Johnson, as Prime Minister, has carried on that commitment and has even accepted the recommendations of the UK's Climate Change Committee to cut greenhouse gas emissions 78% by 2035. I'm delighted to be joined today on the Critic Podcast by Steve Baker, who's the MP for Wickham. Steve, uh, thank you for joining me. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I'm really delighted to be with you. Um, first of all, definitions, net zero, uh, we, we ban that around quite a lot. But that means that you, you're, you're capturing the same amount of carbon as you're releasing, is that right? That's right, so that you're not net adding to adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. You're, if you're still adding it, then you're removing it as well. So you can still fly a, a passenger jet across the Atlantic as long as you plant enough trees? Well, if passenger jets were still burning um, hydrocarbons taken out of the ground, yes, you could imagine it like that. But I rather imagine that what will happen with aircraft is we will end up fueling them with hydrogen and using uh, fuel cells to generate electricity, which will power um, large turbines, which be what I imagine will happen with aircraft. Um, and there's also, in the meantime, between here and there, there's sustainable aviation fuels that can be produced, but just not at scale yet. But yes, you're right. The, 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 the outline you've just given is what I would call offsetting, and offsetting is available today. But we're really talking about the profound transformation about, uh, of the way we live our lives, the way we heat our homes, the way we cook, uh, our ability to travel, indeed where we can travel, mm. the reliability and cost of our electricity, the kind of jobs we do, what we eat. All of these things are on the table for a radical transformation. Um, so this commitment that Boris Johnson made, and well, Theresa May made, and then Boris Johnson carried on. Th- this only worked within the UK's geographical area. Is that, is that right? Well, we obviously the UK government is a territorial monopoly on the use of force on these islands, the United of the United Kingdom, not actually at the moment, not Northern Ireland. Um, so yeah, it's not for us to um, dictate what happens in other countries. Although, although of course, I would expect the government to collaborate. So we're still happy to import things. So I think that's the. That's so that's the... a big question right now, right? So there's been talk of having a carbon border tax, and that was an issue at the general election in uh, 2019. The Green candidates, in particular, were raising the issue of um, exporting our emissions. So I suppose this is an attempt to deal with it. But if I may just step back slightly, what I'm trying to do is here is to ask the how question. So I promised my electors at the count of 2019 since. Green issues and the environment have been so high profile, I promised them that I would get across it. Lord Lawson asked me to get involved with the Global Warming Policy Foundation, and what I've teased out of all of that is I'm now, as an engineer, asking the how questions. We know why we're doing net zero, because we've emitted carbon dioxide, it's a greenhouse gas, climate's changing. We know what we're going to do, because it's been passed, as you've described earlier, into law. The question now is, well, how are we going to do it? Because my really big fear is that we're in danger of repeating the political fiasco of Brexit 
but over net zero. Hmm. Because the public weren't given a choice at the ballot box. Every party offered them net zero, and but didn't really explain what it meant. So there was no choice at the ballot box. Policy makers and the political class are all telling one another that there's consensus over this, but they haven't actually carried the public with them for radical changes. And I see in this echoes of the journey of the European Union. And so therefore I fear that if we don't have this conversation now about, but how are we going to do it? What does it mean? How's our life going to change? And try and carry the public with it, with policymakers or change what we're doing. We'll just have a fiasco later when all mm. this stuff bites. You mentioned Brexit. You're probably best known for, for Brexit and uh, for leading the Eurosceptic ERG group, which uh, worked towards removing the former Prime Minister Theresa May and installing uh, Boris Johnson as yeah. uh, Prime Minister. But, but it's fair to say you, you throw yourself 100% into everything you do, don't you? I mean, one staffer who should remain nameless uh, said to me that the thing about Steve is he, he actually does the work and he actually goes home and does the reading, whereas a lot of MPs don't do that. Do you, do you think the Prime Minister should be worried that you, you've suddenly taken an interest in, in well, climate policy? <laughs> uh, well, other, others have been saying that he should be, uh, which is, I suppose, very honouring. Uh, um, I guess it's because I'm an engineer, you know, so as an engineer, I do care how stuff works, and I do think it's important to, to read the manual, hmm. uh, which isn't to say that uh, we can go from zero to expert in, in, in no time at all. Uh, but yeah, I do like to think I do my homework. Um, but Boris shouldn't have anything to worry about because it's absolutely not my intention to be any threat to Boris Johnson. I just want, if I'm going to be on the back benches, I need serious work to do on behalf of my constituents. And I reckon there are about five big issues that we need to be pursuing. I call them five heresies for the radically moderate conservative. Mm. And the net zero stuff is one of those heresies. And my heresy, I suppose, is to say that I'm rather afraid that the cure is likely to be worse than the disease. But I don't think Boris needs to be worried that I've taken an interest. I mean, that's very flattering, but I just intend to move the conversation forward. Not, not, it's not about him. But you were offered a job in, in government. You were offered the uh, junior. You were the Minister of State for the exiting the European Union. Yes. After a lot of the work had already been done. Yeah, so I turned that down because Boris had taken out all of the remaining functions of Dexu out of the department and given them to the Cabinet Office, and then I was asked to go in as a Minister of State. But as I said to Boris, you've just repeated the phenomenon over which I resigned. You've given all of the functions of Dexu to Michael Gove in the Cabinet Office and then asked me to kind of join an empty department. So I felt I had to say no. I felt that Either I needed to get the Eurosceptics on board for his deal as Secretary of State for exiting the EU uh, with the functions um, in my portfolio, or I needed to be on the back benches so that, as was the case, I was one of them. Um, but there was absolutely no merit in being a Minister of State in a department with no functions. All my Eurosceptic MP colleagues would have seen that I'd just taken a job for the status. That would have destroyed my credibility. Hmm. And it would have left me totally neutered and unable to help get the deal done. So I, I did decline that job. And I also declined another um, a heartbreakingly good Minister of State job in another department. Um, and I don't want to name it out of deference to the person who had that job at the time. But to get me into the government, Boris offered me another job. And for the reason I've just given, I turned that down too. Because we hadn't exited the EU and it just needed to be done. And... Um, I hope I can humbly say that I think my colleagues who were there around the cabinet table with me when we were walking up and down Downing Street to get the deal done with the government 
would say that I played my part in making sure Boris got a deal that the Tory party could unite behind. So I don't regret turning down those two jobs in terms of my duty, but it certainly hasn't done me any good personally. Mm. So you think he wants you in government? You think the Prime Minister wants you in government? Well, he certainly wanted me in government at the time he offered me not one but two jobs. <laughs> um, but what he, I don't know what his attitude is to me now following the, the CRG uh, episode. Um, you, uh, you said that you want to figure out how this works. You want to figure out how net zero works. A lot of uh, experts have said that we're not moving fast enough and uh, we'd need to be uh, replacing a lot more boilers a lot, a lot quicker. We'd need to be building a lot more renewables, perhaps nuclear. But are you kind of giving too much? Uh, are you kind of giving too much um, kind of store by the idea that the prime minister is is doing this as a rational policy? Is this is this necessarily why he's doing it? Is, do you think he's? Do you think perhaps there's something else? Maybe his uh, his domestic arrangements. Uh, oh, I see. I see where you're driving it. Well, hang on, so, so, so take two things. Well, first of all, the way the world is going. The world's obviously decided to go down the road of net zero. And, of course, I can see the merits in it. Apart from any other factor, clearly the climate is changing. But apart from any other factor, it's not a good idea that six billion people should have their lives uh, turn on a finite supply of fossil fuels. The climate is changing. We have committed, uh, we've contributed to it through our emissions. Uh, we should act. But there's, I'm afraid, four different conversations get intertwined unhelpfully. Why should we act? What should we do? How should we do it? And what if we don't? And the conversation I'm really interested in is the how. And what I'm afraid is happening at the moment is some people who are still talking about the why and the what conversations, which have been won. We know why we're doing it, and we've put the what into law. And actually, people need to accept when they've won. You know, all of the political parties in the UK are environmentalists now. Mm. But the question is the crunchy engineering question of how are we going to do it? And how is it going to be politically viable? How is it going to be economically viable? And, and, and how are we going to use actually existing technologies to do it? Because otherwise, we will have that farce that I talked about moments ago about Brexit, a farce like Brexit that policymakers all think that it's done and dusted and settled but then when people find that they can't buy a, they can't afford a car they can't afford to heat their home the electricity is expensive and unreliable uh, and 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 there'll be I, I've said in I think your article you know, poll tax style unrest I would have expected when the public find that they've been bounced into conditions of life very much materially worse than we enjoy today now, to that, the people who are hardest over on net zero and want to go faster would say, well, that's better than death. But I really have to say to those people, I don't think you've actually won the argument that that's what the science says. Mm. This, that, that it relies upon us continuing, for example, to burn coal at old rates, this so-called RCP 8.5, I think it's called, scenario, with very, very high emissions. And we're just off that path now. So... We've got to be very, very, as I'd like to say, radically moderate. I want to be radical in my moderation. Yes, let's act, but let's be sensible about what we do. Hmm. But to your point about, I don't doubt that the Prime Minister's wife, uh, with whom I have absolutely no grievance, I don't doubt that she has very, very strong views on this subject. And all of us with husbands and wives in politics will enjoy the advice of our spouses. And I dare say the Prime Minister has her advice. 
Um, but the extent to which that influences policy, I wouldn't like to say. But I, I would just ask the Prime Minister to put some very searching questions to ministers and in turn to officials about how this is actually going to work. Because both, of, I mean, the, the Prime Minister and his wife, both of their views are quite well known and their views haven't tended to align. I mean, Boris Johnson has, has written in the past that the um, wind turbines couldn't blow the skin off a rice pudding. And, and Carrie Simmons, oh, Carrie Johnson now, um, is, is known to have worked for environmental charities and has been uh, campaigning to save the whale and to reduce fossil fuels. So they, their, their, their views haven't aligned in the past. Yeah. But it, now it seems that, that Boris Johnson is, is fully on board the, the, uh, the environment train. Um, yes, uh, I don't wish to uh, excessively pry into uh, why that might be, but it, we definitely are all fully on board it. Uh, I rather um, fear that Boris is putting an enormous bet on fusion. He mentioned fusion power in a speech and said we were on the verge of fusion power only to then say what a broad verge it was. And we've, always, we've been on the verge for 25 years. So maybe, maybe, it's, maybe Boris is fully converted because of Carrie. Um, but I very much hope that Carrie's asking the searching questions about how to. Hmm. You've joined the Global Warming uh, Policy Forum, um, which, which is known to be the quite... Foundation, a, foundation, the Foundation. Foundation, I'm a trustee of the Foundation, which is the charity. The Forum is, is not a charity. For, okay, got it. Uh, that's known to, to, to be quite, quite sceptical of the idea of man-made climate change. Um, why did you join it? I joined it because Lord Lawson asked me to. And quite frankly, uh, from my generation, I think we owe the prosperity we've enjoyed to that generation of politicians, and in particular uh, to Lord Lawson. I mean, everybody remembers Margaret Thatcher, but Lord Lawson was absolutely essential to the project. I think in many ways he was the politician of, the politician of his age. He didn't want to be Prime Minister, and uh, he changed the world. I mean, he changed our world. Um, and. You know, we owe him an enormous debt, so he asked me to do it, and um, I, I don't mind admitting that in a sense it's a bit of a hospital pass, but there's no way I was going to say no to Lord Lawson. I think if Lord Lawson asks you to take on a job that needs doing, and I do recognise it needs doing, then you say yes. So do you think that, that climate change is, is man-made? Climate change undoubtedly has a man-made contribution. I think if anybody claims that carbon dioxide isn't a greenhouse gas, or that uh, man-made carbon dioxide emissions haven't made a contribution. I think if people make those arguments, they're wasting everybody's time. Mm. But we've got to have... There ought to be a serious scientific conversation about all of the relevant factors, but forgive me, that isn't the conversation I'm having. Mm. As somebody who professionally applied thermodynamics in my role as engineering authority for three gas turbines, three fleets of gas turbines, as somebody with MSc in computer science, I'm tremendously interested in climate mm. science, but I haven't got time to get into it, and other people have done it. But as I say, I think the science conversation is about the why and the what, and I'm much more interested now in the cost. What are we going to? How are we going to deliver it? What, what's it actually going to mean in practice? So, yeah, I'm, I, I completely agree um, that uh, climate change is driven by carbon dioxide to which we have made a serious contribution and we should therefore act. The question is how we act and what we do. Mm. You, so you've turned down, we find out, two uh, jobs in government 
and uh, but you're you're still very busy uh, as a backbencher. You, yeah. You, you've not kind of settled down into the, the loyal backbencher role, it, it, and you, you've got these um, these these five heresies that you've got here for the for the radically moderate. Um, is this a, is this a kind of a rival? Manifesto? Are you kind of leading the charge for kind of more traditional <laughs> no, conservatism? Um, no, 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 no. So, look, I'm an old English liberal, and I like to think that that means that I'm of the future, not the past, um, because progress in society comes through trial and error, uh, not through planning by authority. I mean, that is the long story of human history. There's a wonderful Twitter feed and website, humanprogress.org, and it, it tells you that the, the long story of, uh, uh, of, uh, of humanity is that life gets better. But it gets better when we allow markets and science to work. Um, so I'm very interested in freedom as it is practically applied. So these five heresies are that leaving the EU is a good choice, mm. but now we've got to deliver on it. What, um, what do you mean by that? Have we not already left the EU? We have left the EU. We do need to sort out the Northern Ireland Protocol and the uh, fishery stuff. But that's not really the point I'm making. Uh, you look at somebody like uh, Wolfgang Munchau, writing on Eurointelligence. He's now said that, though he disagrees with Brexit, he said that, uh, I think his words were that uh, in the 10 years after the vote, Brexit is a macroeconomic non-event. Hmm. Now, after all of the horror stories we were told by the Remainers, that's quite a thing for him to write, a mm. macroeconomic non-event for the 10 years after the vote. So the job of people like me now is to say, well, let's turn a macroeconomic non-event into a good thing. So we're delivering the free trade deals. The really important next step is to recapture the tradition of regulation within the spirit of English common law, uh, much less focused on um, bureau bureaucratic processes, much more focused on outcomes. So we, we need to deliver regulatory reform domestically, and that's really what that's about. It's a, it's a good choice to have left the EU. Uh, we've got to get over it and move forward. That's what some of your colleagues are working on. Yeah. Theresa Villiers and uh, Ian Duncan-Smith. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some and, you know, good on them. Um, people like Barney Reynolds advising them. Mm. The next one is that lockdown's the wrong response to coronavirus. Um, the paper, we, need to do, we need to ensure that some very serious science is done about this stuff. But for example, the Spectator has reported on papers which show that in each case when we brought forward lockdown, the government brought forward lockdown, it was after the peak of infections. Mm. So I don't doubt that lockdown is capable of reducing the spread of the disease, but if, it came, if lockdowns were applied after the peak of infections, then they weren't the cause of that peaking. And I think we're going to discover that the most restrictive non-pharmaceutical interventions, things like closing schools, closing restaurants, where we've been told by public health professionals they weren't a big source of spreading the disease, I think we're going to discover that the most restrictive non-pharmaceutical interventions, i.e. lockdown, did much more harm than good. And I also think if we do the science, there's a, there's a chance, I think a, a likelihood, that we're going to discover that most of the deaths or at least a very material proportion of the deaths were associated with a, having had a visit to a health or care setting. So if it is the case that a significant proportion of deaths arose because somebody went to a health or a care setting, picked up the disease, and then the disease on top of whatever their condition was led to their death, um, well, no amount of community measures, lockdown, can deal with that problem because people needed to go to hospital. If they got coronavirus while they are in hospital and it killed them, no amount of lockdown could have solved that problem. So I, I think we've really got to ask hard questions about modelling, the structure of expert advice, 
uh, and we need to have new public health acts to make sure that government seriously considers not just the splash but the ripple of policy as Professor Paul Dolan puts it. Mm. The climate change stuff, I, I think our, we're in danger of getting into a position where our response is the greater problem. I'm very heavily influenced by Bjorn Lomborg and uh, Michael Schellenberger, their two, their two books, um, and we've talked a bit about that. QE, you know, people have got to ask where's some money coming from? Mm. It's not coming from, we're not borrowing it. With all this money we're, we're spending on coronavirus measures, we're not borrowing it from savers because the OBR tells us that the Bank of England is buying about the same quantity of bonds that the government is issuing. In other words, when we're borrowing this money, it's coming from, for want of a better term, the Bank of England's printing presses. So, you know, this cannot go on. We can't keep, we can't keep on propping up the public finances with QE. Eventually, uh, policy will change and we'll find that we can't keep doing it because the Bank of England will have to deal with inflation one day. So I think we're going to need monetary reform, whether that's central bank digital currencies or Bitcoin or I'm involved with a firm called Glint in which I have a declared interest, which is putting gold, has put gold back into the payment system. So there's all sorts of opportunities to change the way that money works, and I think it's actually going to happen now. But I think the reform we're going to get will be central bank digital currencies, and we have to make sure that that's not a threat uh, to privacy and freedom. But yeah, because I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't totally expect you to be on that side because I know that's something that the, the Chinese are, are definitely been exploring, and that's that's a lot of people say that's a way to control their population. Yeah, so I'm not. I, I am absolutely not on the side of using money to hold people under surveillance. Of course, I'm not. I'm an old English classical liberal. I want freedom. What I think I'm really saying to you is, I think it's now a given that central banks are going to issue digital currencies, mm. and that's they're not going to ask my permission. It's just that is the way the world's heading. And the challenge for people like me is to keep on asking the questions to say, you know, when you do this, you are going to make sure that people continue to enjoy privacy, aren't you? And if I may, just the fifth one is about equality. We've got to deal with equality in a way which in brings hope and inclusion to people and says, yes, you are valuable. And yes, we do regret the injustices of the past. And you are British and we love you, for want of a better term. Now let's go on and just walk forward together instead of setting up new hierarchies of grievance enforced by the state. Now the reason I wanted to raise those with you and with your listeners is because all five of them have ended, ended up being what I would call legitimising ideologies for state power. We, we mustn't allow ourselves to believe that freedom is the dominant ideology today. It isn't. The dominant ideology today is that government should do something. Mm. that it should intervene in our lives, track us, control us, for our own good, tell us what to do, nudging us, all the rest of it. And the central bank digital currencies are one of the coming uh, uh, um, embodiments of this problem. Because central bankers trust themselves to administer the monetary system for our own good, mm. they won't be able to help themselves. They'll want to use central bank digital currency to see in real time where we're all spending our money and on what in order that they can twiddle the dials and steer the economy. But this is a madness, this is socialism, and it's never going to work for all sorts of uh, epistemological problems of knowledge. It's never going to work, and there's a great literature on it which I can bore you about on another occasion. But I do rather fear that central bankers won't be able to help themselves. They'll want to bring forward 
basically a new form of surveillance through what we spend with central bank digital currencies. A major threat to banking. There's a paper out yesterday which I haven't read yet. But if people have got access to reserves at the Bank of England, what is the function of the bank? Because at the moment, the bank's function is to extend credit out, literally out of nothing. They, when they make, give you a mortgage, they also create a bank deposit to go alongside it. So on their balance sheet, they've got an asset and a liability that matches. So they create money when they lend. Well, uh, what is going to be the function of a bank if we're using uh, central bank digital currency, which allows us to have direct access to reserves at the Bank of England? Always remembering, of course, that reserves at the Bank of England don't amount to very much other than an accounting entry. Mm. Is it, we're not talking about access to gold. That, forgive me for mentioning it twice when I've got an interest, but that's what glint's for. If you want gold in a vault and to be able to spend it, then you need to go and get glint or gold money as a competitor. And that is possible. But what, what the point I'm making is that entrepreneurs are delivering alternative monies, whether it's through commodity or through Bitcoin, entrepreneurs are applying sound economic theory to deliver high-quality competitive monies. This is something that Hayek called for back in the 70s. He wrote, uh, uh, he, he, there's a pamphlet available from the IEA on the denationalisation of money. Uh, at one point, competing currencies was Lord Lawson's uh, idea for how we could better uh, provide for currency in the European Union rather than having the euro. Um, but there we are, these things are all in the past. The point I'm making though is that the battle for freedom was lost long ago. The dominant idea today is not the, the philosophy of freedom, it is the philosophy of interventionism and state control. And I often feel like a stranger in a strange land because I am a dogmatic old Manchester liberal. Mm. I believe that freedom brings dignity and progress uh, and allows us to realise our virtue and our prosperity, to, to allow us to become better people. And all of that is curtailed when the state cuts across it with its use of power. Mm. You, um, you said that turning down uh, to jobs would, would probably hasn't done your career. Well, I mean, it means I haven't had a, I haven't had a career in the normal sense, no. But do you not do you not see a kind of uh, does the kind of the calculating politician and you see a, a, a rival kind of pathway to power, which is that that, that you you have David, been kind of David, what, what calculating <laughs> politician? I don't know what you mean. The, I'm wounded. The, the, I'm just a mild mannered aerospace and software engineer who's interested <laughs> in ideas. This idea. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I really don't think I. I mean, all right, I can't pretend that I'm not a calculating politician. But I'm not calculating in order to advance myself into power. I mean, I didn't intend to say this in this podcast, but perhaps the difference between me uh, and, and all the other conservatives is that I am a conservative. I don't really believe in the state and in power. I believe that the state is often useful, hmm. but it's not strictly necessary on, in, on, in almost any field. And, um, you know, I, I, I consider myself... Uh, radically moderate in this. I'm willing to be pragmatic. But I, the reason I'm not especially bothered about being a minister is because I don't believe in power. I believe in freedom. You would love to be a minister though, wouldn't you? Not especially, no. I mean, I'd quite like to. The, so the ordinary sort of normal person in me, I'm 50 years of age as of this weekend, um, and, you know, I've been a minister once for a year in a junior position. So, you know, Part of me would quite like to have to have another go at cabinet rank, not least since they splashed on the front page of the Telegraph I was going to be in the cabinet. 
Um, so yeah, I don't, I'm not going to deny that part of me will want to do it, but there's no hunger to do it. I can absolutely assure you there's no hunger to do it. The thing I'm hungry to do is to live in a better, freer world. Mm. That's what drives me. That's why I've got these five massive projects that are, I don't, you know, it's like eating an elephant. But I've got a network of, on each count, I've got a network of people I can count on. And I care about the ideas and the progress and the victories we can get. But, the, but we don't, I, I think surely in my career and so far I've demonstrated you don't have to be a government minister to get progress. No, but during the, when the ERG was fighting Theresa May, the, the Eurosceptics would get together their, their experts uh, and they would write their papers and they would uh, say, look, this is what the government needs to do. It's obvious this is a sensible thing to do. They need to be listening to certain people. I wrote people. two of those papers myself. Yeah. But, and, and, and you did get results, but you didn't just have one hand tied behind your back, you were, you were had both hands tied behind your back in a locked room. I mean, the, 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 you would have had far more influence if you'd been in government. You could have got in the experts you'd wanted. You could have said, no, this, we need to get rid of these people who don't believe in leaving the European Union. We need to... Uh, you, you could have done a huge amount more. But, David, if it was easy, it would be boring, and I would <laughs> leave it to other people. Um, but... Look, I'm not going to. I've got very, very clear ideas about how we deal with what's unfortunately titled expert failure, how we reform the way that modelling works, the, new, the kind of cost-benefit analysis we need to do. My new, my new best friend, Paul Dolan, professor at the LSE, has been teaching me all about how we can use wellbeing economics to do cost-benefit analysis, and I'm excited about that. If we're going to have the state able to do the right stuff, he can show us how. So I've got really clear ideas of what I'd like to do, and I recognise that if I was uh, in the government in the right position, I could get that stuff done. Mm. But it's not in my control. And I, I, you know, somebody once said to me, "There's two ways into the cabinet: you can grease your way in, or you can boot the door down." Mm. And I'm, I am long past greasing my way in. So, you know, I'm afraid it, it is sort of boot the door down territory here. So I'm really clear what I'm working on, and they're all big, big projects to advance freedom under the rule of law and deal with some of the greatest threats to our prosperity. So you'd want to be doing this anyway, I don't, and I don't doubt that you that you believe this stuff, of course you do, you, you, you do, but but you're saying you you do have, slightly have one eye on thinking, look, I've got, uh, I'm, I'm um, thinking very hard about different things, I'm thinking very hard about monetary policy, I'm thinking hard about climate change policy, and I've got people who, uh, I've got a lot of people who, who know me and who support me. I always, I always like to network, so I've, all, you know, name a subject, I'll find you a professor <laughs> that I can count on. But, and you've got a lot of, you've got a lot of currency in being um, trustworthy and in having integrity, and you could use that one day. You could say, look, the, the monetary system's failed or, or climate change policies failed. Look, I haven't been in government for a long time. I've been saying the same thing for a long time. It's not been popular for a long time. I've got this following. Let me have a crack at the, the whip. Well, well, I don't really know what to say. I, um, I'm here to do the work that is before me. And in fact, there's somebody currently in the cabinet who once said to me, Steve, the thing about you is you just do the job that's before you. I, I am here to do the work that is before me. Um, there is a book in a collection of other books which makes that my task mm. but that's another story again for another day unless you really want to press me uh, but that's what I'm here to do I'm not here to advance myself I'm here to do this job and I think it's in the interest of the people of Wickham that I should pursue these five causes uh, not that it's always easy to persuade people of it but if, again if it was easy it'd be boring but I'm really worried that in my constituency People are frightened about a lot of the wrong things. Mm. That food bank use is way too high, housing's way too expensive, 
Mm. And, 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 and it's a massive catalogue of state failure. That state failure was present back in 2010 when I was elected and it was Labour's fault. Shortly we'll have been in power for 14 years going into a new election. We're going to own all these problems. Mm. I mean, the first thing I did when I got into politics was go and give some time to the Centre for Social Justice. So, you know, I remember the breakdown Britain report and the breakthrough Britain which followed it. We need to actually deliver on that. You know, I, I feel really passionately that the state is causing a great deal of misery. And I, and I do say mean the state, not the government, because the government is a collection of ministers. But it doesn't matter who's in power. The state just keeps on growing and taking more powers and rights to itself. These things always come at the expense of society. It's like a sliding scale. There's a wonderful book called Our Enemy, the State, and it goes through this. But all the time we take away from people the volition to do things for themselves and their neighbour mm. and give it to the state, you end up that we're you end up that you're taxing the same people to employ someone else to then force those people. Uh, to do what they ought to have done anyway, which is to have provided for those in need around them. Well, I think that's not very virtuous. I think the virtuous thing to do is the friendly society way, where you actually get together as a matter of freely chosen choice to do what is right for yourself, your family, and your and your neighbours. Mm. But but we're we're a long way from all of that. But I I think we're living through a time when we're going to very quickly find out that we can't afford all the government. That I think inflation is going to come in, that inflation is going to burst the bond market bubble, and then Boris Johnson is going to face a choice. Either cut spending and raise taxes like, we, like we've never lived through before, mm. or change the mandate of the Bank of England to something like nominal GDP targeting, so that he can keep on borrowing money from the printing presses. And I think we know which one Boris is going to choose. He's going to change. I, I think if the crunch moment comes that the bond markets aren't working, Boris will change the mandate of the Bank of England. And then I think we'll really be off to the races on spending. And so one way or another, sooner or later, I think in our lifetimes and not too far off, mm. we're going to have to think really hard about what the state does for us all. And in a sense, I know, I know plenty of people do think of me in the terms you've just put to me about ambition. You know, why isn't he as ambitious to be a minister or, or whatever? In, in, in terms of the kinds of problems that I think we face, no one, no one should have personal ambition. Not really. The, the, the problems that we're likely to face are going to be so, so terrible in terms of our inability to fund the promises we've made, to, to, to particularly to those who are old and unable to earn a living. Mm. I think within a few years that, that is going to overtake everything else. And we're not going to be able to, to, frankly, screw around forcing people to have heat pumps, which they can't afford, so that they can have houses that are cold in the winter. Now, how many times we've talked about the old people having a choice between eating or eating, and then we're going to force them to have heat pumps? Because, mm, I mean, I looked at... I mean, yeah, my, my father-in-law's just got a heat pump in, because I, I was listening to a, a Radio 4 programme about heat pumps, and they said, oh, you know, we'll just all you need to do is replace your boiler. It, it's like for like, it's pretty similar... And then they said, uh, oh, but how much does it cost? And they said it's between 8000 and uh, something like £15,000. But excluding replacing all your radiators or and or changing the height of your floors to get the underfloor heating in. Exactly. I mean, but aside from the cost, my father-in-law's just got one installed. It's a huge unit that goes outside their house, and it's a huge unit inside the house. With a, it's, This is not, it's not a simple thing. But, but indeed, do. and the irony of this conversation is that I have a heat pump at home because I've got air conditioning in the top floor of my house because the roof space is unusable as a study if it's not air conditioned and it can be run in reverse as a heat pump 
but it's not a very it, it's a pretty in it it seems to me a pretty expensive way to heat my roof space in mm. the winter uh, it's far more effective to switch the central heating on and burn some gas um, but you know these, these are anecdotes rather than evidence we need to get through the evidence mm. of what the right thing to do is um, just I mean we need to wrap it up fairly soon but but you kind of I'm sure you, you know you say you don't want to be a minister and you prefer it's policy not to, that I'm not it's not that I don't want to be a minister you prefer to get I prefer I'm to not, get your policy objectives through rather than I'm not really bothered whether I'm a minister or not I, I, I came into politics to tr be the kind of MP that I thought an MP should be and it's hard to say that because my critics will come up with all sorts of ways that I'm failing and the truth is politics is hard if I've learned one thing in this time. MPs don't, and ministers, don't do a bad job because they're lazy or stupid or dishonest. They do a bad job sometimes because they, it's... surely. Well, possibly, <laughs> but I don't wish to condemn them, but possibly sometimes. Yes, possibly sometimes. But overwhelmingly, I believe that members of parliament are as honest as anyone else. Look around, they're really quite well qualified people, some of them, and hard working, and they care about other people. And they got into politics to make the world a better place. The reason that they so often fail is that they're using the wrong techniques is one problem. And that it's just a very difficult thing to do to govern the lives of other people. So I got into politics so I could always count on my vote, um, which is itself a very another conversation. But I'm just, I just want better policy. Mm. And if I, have to do, if I get the opportunity to deliver it as a minister, that's great. And if I have to fight for it on the back benches, then that's fine. And do you take comfort? I mean, you're a Christian, so you believe that um, God uh, is ultimately in control. Do you take comfort from that, thinking, look, it doesn't uh, really matter <laughs> where, where my career goes. I've, I believe in a God who actually um, well has control over these things. I try very hard to avoid uh, questions of God's control over the world. I think that we are called to choose and to think and to act for ourselves. And um, I've often studied these ideas about determinism and fate and so forth. I actually think that the idea that there's nothing we can... I think it's very dangerous to believe in fate under whatever label you call it, even if it's a, 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 an omnipotent, uh, all-merciful, ever-loving God, because it means we surrender our own agency, and I think that is very dangerous, and I'm not willing to do it. So, yes, I absolutely... I am. A, I am a mere Christian who definitely believes in God and the central messages of the gospel, which of course are to love God and to love your neighbour, even your enemy. And I try to live that out. God help me, I do, but it's hard. But that is partly why I'm not bothered about being a minister, because, um, you know, things like Philippians, um, if we should be humble, thinking of us better than ourselves. And so, you know, it sounds a bit trite and too pious, but nevertheless, you know, I'm called not to try and I'm not called to try and advance myself into the cabinet I'm called to stand on what I believe and to try and advance it so that's what I'm doing mm. well Steve Baker thanks very much for coming on the Critic Podcast you're most welcome thanks very much for having me on if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.